Good morning, everybody, and welcome to episode 100 of the Quickie Podcast. Damn, that feels good to say. I cannot believe we made it to 100, but we did. So thanks for coming along with us. I'm your host, Dave Hopkins, and before I get into this interview with a fantastic guest today, I have a couple of things I wanted to let you know about. The first one is Crop Cruise. Next year, 2020, is the fifth anniversary of CropCons, which was founded by my buddy Matt Dawson from episode 58, and they're celebrating that fifth anniversary by hosting the event on a cruise to the Bahamas called Crop Cruise. They have an amazing list of speakers, including today's guest, and actually another guest from one, from uh, the Quickie Podcast, Mr. Scotty Russell from Perspective Collective. Cruise is taking place April 18th to the 22nd, and to sign up and find more information, head over to cropcons.com. This is going to be a dynamite event. There's very limited tickets available, so definitely go check it out. Every event for them sells out, so don't miss out on this wicked event. The next thing I wanted to let you know about is, um, as you probably heard as a regular listener, my background is in printing, and I love working with designers and branding agencies to help create amazing print and tactile experiences. So to help designers save some time by having to go back and forth with their printer when they're sending files in and make corrections or redoing anything, I created a quick reference guide on the top things to double check before sending your file in to print. So this guide will cover the most common things that are missed when even experienced designers send their files in for printing. So check that out. To get that free guide, head over to thequickiepodcast.com and you can pick that up for free there. All right, so my guest for episode 100 is a guy you might not have heard of before. He's fairly new to design, um, Mr. Aaron Draplin. We had an amazing interview. It uh, was titled The Quickie-ish because it actually went on for over an hour. So I split this interview into two parts, part one today, part two tomorrow. During part one of this episode, we talk about his creative childhood that included junking and going to garage sales with his dad. He tells us stories about that. We also get into why he originally moved out of northern Michigan to the west coast, to Oregon. We get into his first design job um, before he had even started doing design in snowboard magazines, which was sort of his first kick down the door into the design world. Um, And that story is one that he doesn't talk about very much. But uh, it's a great one, and I'm glad he brought it up for the Quickie Podcast. We also talk about how design is oftentimes better when it's kept simple and just functions and works. We get into a bunch of examples of that. And he tells us a story about a couple of tough spots he's been put in when the client goes into your designs and starts moving things around and changing the DNA of that piece and how to handle that. Guys, this interview is jam-packed and I love Aaron's personality. No BS. He gets right to it. So let's get right to this. Ladies and gentlemen, part one of my interview with Aaron Draplin. Here we go. Welcome to the Quickie Podcast, the daily interview show where we talk to graphic designers about their journey to the creative field. 
and we do it in 30 minutes or less. So, are you ready for a quickie? Good morning, Mr. Aaron Draplin. Thank you so much for being here on the show today. Do I have to talk really, really fast because it's called the quickie? Do I have to pack it all in and get it really fast? Yeah, that was a little bit too slow for the show. So if you could pick it up. <laughs> I mean, this half hour shit, man, I'm nervous. Because, you know, I do like to do these things real long form. As in, you ask a very simple, succinct question, and I talk way too long. You know what my record is? My record is eight and a half minutes for one answer. And you know why? Because everyone thinks they're Ira Glass. I don't, know what you, I don't know what you got up in Canada. But down here, everyone thinks they're... I don't know, Edward R. Murrow or something. And it's some kid in his dorm room asking me these questions. And he's got the personality of the edge of this desk I'm sitting at right now. And then I have to answer the question. And my record's eight and a half minutes. Anyway, all right, let's do it. Eight and a half minutes. That's amazing. It's just narcissism is what it is. It's like out of page out of Ron Burgundy's book. I'm not even mad. It's gross. (laughs) Um, you know what? Because you sweet talked to me, I might give you an extra five minutes in the end here. So don't sweat it. But um, okay. so briefly, okay. tell the listeners about yourself. Well, my name is Aaron James Draplin. I am forty-five years old. I'm a graphic designer here in Portland, Oregon. Um, you guys have heard this before. You know, yeah, I, I make logos and um, I work on stuff for rock and roll bands, and I work on stuff from restaurants, and I, I make field notes with Jim Kudal, and I'm in Skillshare videos. And I built a typeface called DDC Hardware. I'm just trying to think of all the initiatives, you know. Mm-hmm. Or we'll just say things that maybe, you know, generate a paycheck that I have to sweat. But beyond all those things that, you know, you have to deal with with taxes or something, there's a lot of other stuff that no one ever sees, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I guess they see the, you know, going on the road and talking about myself. They see the pop-ups and stuff. But there's also... You know, I just really love to make design, and I love to do it sometimes for no money and sometimes for, you know, friends or sometimes for just a donation. There's a lot of that that people don't see, um, and it's kind of even hard to talk about, but that that's something I'm kind of most proud of, you know, is, yes, I can go down the line and tell you this is what I do, and this is what you've seen, but there's always someone spoken things that are cool, you know, mm-hmm. um, and that's, I mean, I don't know, you know, I, I really, this has been just a study and trying to do this with a clear conscience uh-huh. and clear open heart and, and work hard and save money and, and 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 get ahead and try to do it you know ethically and and try to enjoy it that's like the main thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, on my show, I've had nearly 100 guests that I've interviewed. And uh, I'd say 50% of them have looked up to you sort of as an inspiration to them. And the comment on why most of the time is because you are that you you have a lot of integrity. And that comes through in your social media and how you're connecting with your audience. And you put your heart into it. And you're a real dude. Um, so okay. that's, I mean, I really appreciate that. I mean, first things first, what's up with the other 49, the other 49. Yeah. I don't know. They got, they got, they got a problem. I'll well, send them an email and say, what the hell? Well, what's, please. <laughs> you know, what's interesting is I, first of all, I really appreciate that. Of course. And it just feeds into my megalomania. Um, of course. So thank you. But you know, what's, what's, what happens on the road is, you know, I, I get there to something, and, you know, we'll say it's a, one of these conferences. Mm-hmm. They need a hand carrying some shit in, and I'll, I'll help them. And then they, you know, the guy says, hey, do you mind if you come out and, you know, do this extra podcast or do this question or this kid wants to interview? I say, yeah, yeah, cool. Let me let me finish my little, you know, uh, the, the bowl of fruit and shit in the back stage. And let me come out and meet the kids. 
and I'll spend the day with the kids. I, mm-hmm. Whatever, I'm out there. They're climbing on me. They're you know accosting me, and and we're you know whatever. And towards you know, th- then I do my song and dance, and I, I do I sell a bunch of shit at the merch table. And at the end of the day, we you know whatever. Here's what'll happen: someone will come up to me and say, you know, all of the speakers are standing there, and someone will come up to me and they'll say, "Drap them." <laughs> We just, we just really, you know, you are the most authentic of all, you know, and there's like six other speakers standing there. And it's like, what does that say? Because, you know, I, I appreciate it, but it's like, I think people are all real, uh-huh. uh, but sometimes real can mean they don't want to, they're not going to go over whatever their little contract dictated uh-huh. and that shit sucks. Yeah. And if that's real to them, well, that's weird, you know, because, man, you got, you just got your ass flown to Kansas City and you get to spend the night in a nice hotel and you get to hang out all day. It's not like you're chained to a day. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, you know, people react to that stuff. But, I mean, I, I guess, the, you know, the, the, the most the, the proudest answer I can give is I appreciate that, of course, but I'm trying to be exactly who I am, mm-hmm. who I sit behind at this desk working and of course, when a microphone gets turned on, I try to be that same guy too because that's weird that it would be something guarded or a performance. And yes, when I go get in front of people, it's a song and a dance because I need to get through a list of things I want to tell people. Uh-huh. You know, there has to be some choreography in there. You know, yes, you learn where the cymbal crashes go, and you learn, you know, what you know. I don't know, but the idea is this, and I try to stand behind this. If a kid knew of me from a Skillshare or a kid knew of me from some piece of media or this thing from your podcast. Mm -hmm. And then they met me on this and then they met me at target, you know, in the parking lot. It is the exact same thing. Same dude. Cause that's, cause here's, and I'm not going to name any names. I'll give some initials. I'll give some initials, but I've met it where it goes the other way, you know, and I'm not trying to sling mud, but that shit just freaks me out because it's like, wait a second. You were pretty cool on stage, but I gotta say you were kind of a dick. Otherwise, mm-hmm. do not get dick to these kids. You know, this is what I'm thinking in the moment because we're in the backstage in this weird, weird one in a not one in a million, one in one in seventeen thousand position where you get to, you know, you get to kind of withhold yourself or go and dive in with the kids, and it's like fuck that. Just go out there and be who you, you know. Anyway, I don't yeah. know. I appreciate. I appreciate. Awesome. Um, so how long have you been officially freelancing as Mr. Aaron Draplin before? Well, uh, yeah, I, I guess it would be really officially would have been 2004 because mm-hmm. that's when I was on my own. But all the way back to probably 95 and, and even at that point when I didn't have a computer, I was just doing illustration, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I had that in me. And at that time, that was only hobby, right? It was... Yeah. It was like that's all I could really generate from this stuff, and it was so cool that you could. Um, oh, I don't know how to say it. Yeah. Use something that you like to do to get ahead. Mm-hmm. That those weren't mutually exclusive. Like if you put where I'm from, you put the time in, you have to give your time, and you get some shit paycheck. And here was something where I could start to I could draw or design a logo or make a board graphic or whatever it was. Before this, this is all before the computer, mm-hmm. and then get a little paycheck for it. That was amazing, and it, it, it bit me in a really cool way because you have to understand. Up to that point, it was pizza jobs. It was, you know, working at a, uh, some, you know, on a on a chairlift or something at a at a, you know, at a ski resort or something like that. 
it was that kind of stuff. You know, and that kind of leads into my so the next question, which was getting directly to that, is what were you doing before that? You were dabbling in freelance on the side, and then made it official in two thousand four. But what were you doing before that, and in that we transition? Snow- we were snowboarders. We were out west to be snowboarders and be with our buddies and skateboard and. Um, I, of course, I was into art and bands and seeing rock and roll up in Portland and stuff. But really, our, our focus was to be out there and to be in the mountains. And this is in Bend, Oregon, to be you know at Mount Bachelor, to be snowboarders and to ride and understand that culture and have a bunch of friends in it. And we did it, and it was incredible. Um, and that whole time, this is before the computer. I, it was all analog. I could just sit and I like to draw, right? Mm-hmm. I was looking at the magazines, and I was starting to get my stuff slowly into zines around Bend, Oregon, or get myself slowly into the hands of local little skate and snowboard companies and stuff around around uh, Bend, Oregon, or you know, a couple times up and down the West Coast, and just doing whatever the hell it took. But also, you know, what you have to understand is at that time, I didn't really even understand you could make any money. When, when, when I started to make a little bit of money, you know, it was awesome. But I, I could always fall back on that it was just kind of fun to do. This is what I did with my free time, you know? It wasn't this pursuit where I already had a little degree under my belt. We would go snowboarding in the morning. We'd get back, and I would go to my pizza job. But somewhere in between there, I would find time to draw and make little illustrations and look at my heroes, which might have been, you know, um, I don't know at the time, rock and roll poster people or, uh, uh, you know, the, the records uh, records and CDs I was buying. I was always reading those liner notes and stuff mm-hmm. and then emulating. And, you know, what happened was a friend, you know, was at a uh, – I knew how to use computers because I had a little associate's degree. No one had one around me. They were expensive. But a friend went to a community college and we would sneak in and use his stuff to go use their, like, you know, I don't know, page maker on their mm-hmm. quads or whatever. And I don't know how old you are. How old are you? I'm 33. Must be nice to have you <laughs> on your side. At that time, you would have been about five. Anyway, uh, or whatever. But it's like this weird thing where it was like we would go use those things, and I got a bug with that. I could I could like use their stuff. You know, it was all it was one more tool. Now I could instead of having to hand letter my business cards, I could use their page maker to build my business card, print them out, hand cut them, hand. Uh, cover them up and put them onto cardboard, whatever, onto chipboard or something, and then hand those out to my asshole friends, you know, <laughs> and get little jobs and little things. And, um, you know, where it really exploded, you know, was I had my, I, I always forget to talk about this, but I did have a design job before all this stuff, mm-hmm. you know, my, before my first real job, which was at a snowboarding magazine. It was at this thing called the Nickel Ads. And the Nickel Ads were like, you know, a rancher. Um, or, you know, some good old boy or whatever from Central Oregon could roll into the nickel ads. You got their car they're trying to sell outside. I go running out. I take a picture with this crude digital camera or <laughs> whatever it is. You know, I mean, maybe it was just real film. Someone drops that film off later on. I get it back a day later. I have to scan that in, clean out their car, and the root, you know, the basic Photoshop at the time, uh-huh. and then build an ad. And then that ad goes in amongst other little, you know, tiny little want ads and stuff. And then if you paid extra cash and your car is actually shown or your big rancher um, trailer, you know, from a big, you know, cowboy cat behind a big cowboy Cadillac is shown, you're going to sell your shit. So um, I worked at a thing called the Nickel Ads for about eight months. And that was my first graphic design job. But see, there, if I'd work all day, they'd let me work a couple hours on their machines. And that's really where I started to kind of get, like, fluent again 
you know, having a machine to use for my own logos and things and stuff. That oh, was, that was 1996. Cool. That summer, I went up to Alaska and um, I uh, made 10 grand in the summer of 96, made 10 grand and brought it back in the fall and bought my first computer. And it's, it's just been ape shit ever since. Because then I had the tools. Yeah, exactly. I want to dive a little bit back further than that. And I want to ask you about your childhood. So this is usually where the counseling session starts and I start billing you. Um, But tell me about your childhood, what that was like. Do you feel that you had a creative childhood that led you down this career path? Yeah. I mean, I I have a cool mom and dad. I have a cool mom and dad. We we lost my dad. You've probably heard that shit. We're saving a lot on groceries. These are the jokes I use to (laughs) smooth myself. Oh, he was a horrible person. Now that he's gone, we can really let the truth out. No, I, I had a, my dad was awesome. I hate using the word was. He is awesome. He's yeah. everywhere. He's in, he's in you right now. He's deep up inside you right now and me right now. You're in, up in the Canada. I'm here. It's, that, that's my dad. But uh, my mom, you know, still around. I, they were just really cool. You know, they, they there was the, the battles that kids have, sure. But my mom and dad weren't, you know, necessarily no people. They were... Like, well, if you're going to be a yes, if this is a yes, we have to figure out why. And we have to figure out what the budget is. We have, you know, like my mom was really good at like uh, pluses and minuses, you know, like mm-hmm. okay, if you're going to go now. Here's what you need to remember. And if you're going to do this, here's what you got to think about. So I had that. It wasn't just this. You're not doing it because I said so. None of that kind of arbitrary shit. They were cool people. They were ex hippies and they were liberals. And they were, you know, progressive in the way, you know, with their friends and the way that they voted. And I I, I was raised on that. But, you know, beyond that, in our home, my dad was a master junker and a Polish pack rat and a woodworker. And my mom, you know, was always, um, you know, knitting baskets and had different hobbies and crafts and things over the years um, that we were around. So it'd be tools and stuff and spools of thread and yarn and shit. And we were around that stuff. And then of course we had our own too. So we were in a, you know, a creative family. Like I remember them taking us to like, um, um, our, uh, what do you call it? Like an art show. What do you call it? Art, art like an art, art gallery to art fairs. Okay. And you know, there would be local crafts, people, you know, artists and shit selling everything from wood art to paintings to riffraff. And we would go support that stuff, you know. And my parents, you know, were, you know, we were raised around antiques, so there was like this big appreciation for like, your dad went and found this for nothing, cleaned off a hundred years of paint, and now when we have it in 1980, it's you know it's brand new to where it was in 1880, but here it is in 1980, and it's new, and this is what we use. I was raised around an entire house of that shit, That's so cool. there's like this weird appreciation for like. Yeah, you know, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Or, you know, this actually is, is this works enough, you know. And yet, as just another little bit of contrast, I had an uncle who I would kind of call a modernist who had, you know, sort of an, um, an appreciation for Eames furniture and an appreciation for that sort of mid century um, modern, um, oh, uh, just sensibility. Mm-hmm. Everything from his handwriting to he was an engineer to some of the furniture in their home was just enough to, for me to see coming from this very 
kind of rural northern Michigan mm-hmm. down to Detroit and getting this taste of the high life, you know, just a little bit. So I knew the contrast. When we went back to my house, it was an old farmhouse that my dad fixed up. When we went to my Uncle Tom's, it was this cool, crisp, modern home that had these incredible angles and, you know, uh, uh, floor-to-ceiling glass on one end, right? And, you know, I remember as a little kid, like, you could feel the winter coming through that glass. But it was a design decision, right? Mm -hmm. It felt premium to me. So, you know, I had those influences all the way back. Yeah. So have you then become a collector yourself from that, taking that? Oh, of course. Of course. I mean, I was around it. My dad used to mess with us because, you know, when you're 11, that's the last thing you want to do is have to go to some antique mall or uh, a flea market and walk those lanes. But my dad used to make it fun and he'd say, hey, hey, this is the one kid. He knew whatever I was into. Aaron, this is the one. We're going to walk down this lane. There's going to be a box of Star Wars shit. It's going to be five bucks for the box. <laughs> You're going to double up on your Yodas and shit. Aaron, this is the one. And you know what? You know, 14 years old, Aaron, some kid ran away from home. He went to California. He got to California. He was a skateboarder just like you. He had skateboards and things and stuff, and he died in California. And then, you know, they had to send all of it back to his parents here in Michigan and at this garage sale, and you never know, this is the one that has a box of that shit for a buck. We got to go look. And we go look, and there was never shit. So he would psych you up for it. Oh, he'd me all excited. So that was fun. You know, I mean, what I'd give to take my, you know, to go, listen, we went junking a lot. You know, but, it, you know, I, I miss that because that's in me now. Mm-hmm. And now I do that to my nephew who, you know, nine and doesn't want to go or to my girlfriend if she's had too much for the day. And it's like, come on, this is the one. Yeah. And, you know, as a funny little story, uh, years ago, I guess about seven years ago, I was back home visiting my mom and dad in Michigan, and we're driving, you know, Cedar Run Road back out to where my parents live, like we, you know, they had done, you know, my mom's been there you know, coming up on 25 years, and, mm-hmm. like they had done for years, and um, you know, but as the back of your hand, you go around this one corner, there's this little garage sale sign, and my dad just gives me, <laughs> come on, I know you want to get back and lay on the couch, you know, and whatever, work on your projects, because I would get, I would go home, I would sit at their, you know, their, their dining room table and work, and just command what I needed, you know, to work on, right, mm-hmm. and my dad gives me the eye, hey, come on, asshole, we gotta go, this is <laughs> the one, I mean, Aaron, what do you, this is the one, it's gonna have, re- we, we park, we walk in, sure as shit, we walk up, and he just points at this stack of records, he goes, I told you so, and there's Bob Dylan, the freewheeling Bob Dylan, on the top of the stack, super clean copy for a buck. Oh and that's probably gosh. $60, $70. I don't know, whatever. It's some version. You know, it's that kind of magic. That is in me. That is in me. And also folly. You know, my dad also, the humor of like pulling up on something and being like, you know, this is another great story. You know, uh, by the way, this is turning into the Criterion Collection here. Um, we're driving back from Detroit, and my dad, you know, we, we go to gas up in West Branch. That's halfway. Okay. So we have two and a half more hours to go. And my dad, we're going to gas up and, you know, maybe hit a, you know, a, a McDonald's or some shit. He's going to keep me fed or, you know, get to have some, you know, salty fast food because we're not back home or when you're around your mom and shit and we're on the road together. And I don't know, I'm. I'm 14 or 15 or some shit, still in high school. And we see a little sign. And he goes, hey, we got to go. Come on. 
Well, we've got two more hours. we got to go. Let's just go see. So we, we drive off the I-75 in, in Michigan. And then we drive you know, off the highway down some country road a couple miles. Then we see another sign and we turn down some dirt road and we got to go three miles on a dirt road. And then you get to some little cul-de-sac. Oh, yeah, there's the last sign. And we pull into the cul-de-sac and we got to worm around this cul-de-sac. And then he finds the last sign and we pull up in the driveway and he stops in the driveway and just goes, fuck, baby clothes. (laughs) (laughs) Don't even, don't even get out. Just don't. Don't even just shut up. Don't touch nothing. Don't even just don't. And he puts it in reverse and we back out and we get to that last little turn into their driveway and he drives back out. But you get to the edge of their cul-de-sac before it turns into the country road or whatever the fuck. And he stops, jumps out of his little minivan, goes running out to that you know second to last sign, grabs the sign, whips it off into the brush. You know, flying through the air, and he gets back in the car, and he goes, "We got two more signs to go. We're going to save this whole community from that pile of shit, baby clothes yard sale." And we destroyed all the signs all the way back to I seventy five, and then drove back to to uh, you know, Traverse Michigan. Anyway, true story. That's hilarious. So in that transition, while you guys are doing junking and you're looking at garage sales and all of that, is, was there a moment that stands out to you where you first started noticing graphic design like out in the world? What did you first start seeing? Well, that goes way back. And I think what that is, it, 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 it's due to limitations. We didn't – I never really knew that we didn't have a lot because I had a good mom and a dad. I had a little sister and we had – you know, a little baby sister. Um, um, there was my, we, there, I had two little sisters, and my dad used to say, "I have three kids, one of each." You were, we, we never really knew we didn't have a lot. So when I got a box of Legos, it was really kind of a special thing for a birthday or Christmas or something from Santa or whatever. You know, it's like I remember how crisp and beautiful but i mean we'd see them when we go to stores and i would i remember getting little boxes you know of course but you know if it's like a christmas you got a, you know a big spaceship or you got a fire truck set or whatever it was and mm-hmm. i remember the typography on the boxes it looked like the type which was helvetica it looked like the helvetica that you saw on when my mom and dad would buy these like if you've heard of dansk and dansk were you know sort of the scandinavian um like accessible modern cups and you know stuff, yep. and Dansk did a version of like the you know the 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 the, the Vignelli Heller Knoll stuff. They did a version of that somewhere at the dance store. You could get that stuff. Yellow plastic, orange, green, pop colors. This is 1981 or 80, and awesome spatulas and shit. My parents had a couple sets of that stuff. Those were splurges, but I remember. The quality of what the packaging looked like that when you went into that store, everything, it was this crisp, modern, Helvetica bold. And that reminded me of, of, of my Lego boxes. And then the next thing I would have seen when I was seven years old, would have been or eight years old, was the Helvetica on the side of the space shuttle. Uh-huh. And that was this crisp, modern, futuristic thing. And it, it grabbed me. What it, what it meant was... These are special things. Like, you know, Aaron, keep your box. Look how cool the box is. You know, I remember my dad, you know, we keep the box. You know, and I was, because we didn't have a lot of that shit around, it really stood out. Because, you know, at the mercy of whatever, you know, imports and whatever the hell that was coming into northern Michigan, there was a certain look. I remember when we would go over to Sault Ste. Marie 
or we would go over to Windsor, you know, things would change. And what you got a taste of, it wasn't this bullshit American exceptionalism like we're the we don't need to you know, we do our own thing. Mm-hmm. No, got to see things from the rest of the world. So candy suddenly looked cooler. And G.I. Joe guys had cooler um, guns and cooler colors and everything was in French, you know, and all this weird. It was exotic to me as this little rat kid from northern Michigan. But I was looking at that. I was looking, you know, and the beer labels looked different because they were tapping into the world. Um, so now I want to ask you, Aaron, through all of these amazing things that you've seen in your design life and your your career so far, what stands out as the most influential design you've come across? Maybe it's something you've been a part of even. The most influential design that I've come across. Oh, man, that's a bit. I mean, I, I, I read your questions and stuff. I, I thought a little bit. I mean, I think it's a very probably a bit of an obtuse answer. But okay. it's more about the things you don't realize. That's really powerful to me. So let, let me just say this, something like this. It has to do with Canada. When you go across the border and you see American custom forms, and then you go across the border into Canada and you see, you know, when you guys come towards us and you see our customs forms and we go over to you guys, the power of your system, it's easier to read because it has to work for, you know, the Quebecois, and it has to work for this sort of like, I don't know, it's just that license to have order with just how typography works. That's mm-hmm. something that I always loved about Canada, and I always loved about when you go to Europe. Now, the first time I went to Switzerland, it was so fun for me just to go into like a, a supermarket and to look at like the simplest the simplest of toothpaste and shit. And sure, they're under the same pressures as us to make it look, you know, better than the next Procter & Gamble product, you know, which mm-hmm. would be, like, I don't know, Aquafresh or some shit. But, but the thing is, is some of the really root base stuff was just out of a, a, a simple design system. And it was simply about clarity, about transparency of of the data and this is these are the ingredients that go into this thing they're easy to read and there was a democracy to that and i just that's the kind of stuff that really gets me and and you know you don't of course now you see it with some, some materials for some kick-ass uh, 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 uh um piece of furniture or something mm-hmm. because it's a motif that kind of goes with like you just bought this special thing and here's what the materials talk about this special thing say you know and it's this cool thing and it all feels really crisp and modern and that becomes a design solution to elevate something but it used to be this thing just for clarity mm-hmm. and i love that stuff i love you know, i love seeing that you know that's not just 1980 when i was you know sort of starting to look at things or 1989 when i was like wow this record cover looks a little bit different than this for this reason. It's more like if you go back and you look at, you know, the, the sort of the agrarian landscape of America and you look at farmers and the things that I love so much about that, the type and the memo books and the signs and the feed and seed, you know, logos and graphics, they were just purely no bullshit. They just were meant to work. And that functional freedom is something that... I, I would hope you would see in my work or in my type or in my things just to let something rest and be as it is. And, you know, if you look at our field notes, it's just Futura Bold. That is a reaction only because I saw things like for instructions that mm-hmm. did 
exact same thing and fuck it was readable it was readable and it was this is the thing it's like you're not buying instructions you're buying the lawnmower but how do you put the lawnmower together that device and that kind of now it looks like a kind of a retro thing no that device of that kind of one typeface used this way with proper hierarchy it worked and that's the stuff i like i like the things that are time tested you know i i, I try to use that in my own work mm-hmm. i try learn from that shit i try to exhibit that stuff but i rest on that stuff because you know i I, when i came into this stuff i just was reading something stephen heller called it the 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 war on legibility and isn't that fun isn't that fun to say that now but was stephen heller making that shit back then maybe he wasn't but there were people making a lot of shit in 1995 where it was all scritch and scratch and puke on a page and i don't know if you remember this stuff but it was just kind of horseshit you know, and it was really highfalutin. And I remember trying to make it and feeling like a total poser. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, of course, we're going to do that as a culture of artists and things. You know, the computer allows us to go this far now, and we're going to do it. You know, the damage of communication. But here's the thing. I remember getting magazines, and it would have been damaged in this, you know, in the name of fashion, and you couldn't read the fucking article. That sucks. That Definitely. sucks. You know, so so uh, yeah, I'm right and they're wrong. Next question. <laughs> I really like how you touched on the Switzerland supermarket, even just looking at basic food packaging. Um, because when my wife and kids and I went to Ireland and Scotland just a few months ago, um, walking into our first supermarket over there, um, I spent a good half an hour at least until I was pulled away from it, just looking at the packaging Great. and the different design and just how it was presented and felt different than um, you know what we had experienced before. Well, or, or just the idea of like when I went to Guatemala, mm-hmm. we're really lucky as North America, whatever, North America, you know, Canada, sure, same, same as America, whatever. Um, Careful now. Well, I mean, <laughs> here's the deal. I, well, I know, but you, you go to your, fuck, what do you got? I don't know, Queen's Majesty's Royal Corner Supermarket, and you get to dig through how many different kinds of soda pop. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. How many different kinds of cereal. And it's like, wow, we have variety here. What a privilege the that we abundance have. Abundance of variety. We have abundance here. And we have so many things to pick through, and you have so many options. And when you go buy a car, you get to do this. But when you go to like a Guatemala, it's there, but there is a quality of like, this is the one to get, and this is just the one you get, and we all grab it, and you know, what does that packaging look like? Because it's not competing. Like, you know, remember years ago, the little, I don't know what you can call it, a meme or a little viral something you click on, and it showed how, you know, uh, Windows was just so populated with horseshit trying to make Apple look bad. Mm-hmm ended up with 94 things on their packaging and then you have an apple package which is white with a little silver apple and it just a hit of this apple watch or whatever that confidence that that fuckery of design where you trusted i mean at least in my case i trusted that apple because it felt premium and it felt yes. didn't need to come and say x2000 have holograms there was some little thing that you could click on and show how they would you know murder their software packaging and there's something about that when you see it stripped of all of that competitive capitalist bullshit you just get down to the root and that's where i was really and listen this is a weird one but i was equally inspired 
and fucking terrified the first time I went to Berlin and started to really look at the old DDR packaging of you know before the you know before the wall went down, uh, what their shit looked like over you know in East Germany, and it was terrifying mm-hmm. because it was state sponsored, and that's what happens when there's someone pull, you know controlling the purse strings and saying you only get this much <laughs> bread and shit you know and and here's what this is state sponsored sugar and this is what it looks like because you know what's interesting is that stuff is beautiful to me it's really hyper functional and what little they could do to make i don't know a, the the minimal treats that people were allowed to have look fun they did it but there was an ominous quality to it and it's like really weird to me when i when i see that stuff it's like you know I don't know. That's the stuff I think about when I'm working. Do I do I have to be careful that um, um, am I am I sprinkling too much shit on this just to be frivolous or fashionable? <laughs> yeah. When you know when I I kind of want to dip at least start in the functional and then work my way up and just do a little sprinkle of the of the other f words, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's that's something that I think about all the time. And that came from being in the middle of nowhere. And it came from an appreciation of shit that just works, you know, and still to this day works. I mean, that's the interesting part about this. It's one thing for me, big goddamn beast of a man, whatever, to wax about this stuff. But if you go right now and land in Nebraska and Omaha and drive 10 minutes in any direction and get out of the city and get to the first cornfield, the first cornfield outside of Vancouver, the first cornfield outside of Portland, chances are. There's a little sign there that says this kind of feed is used in this field, and that is graphic design, and that shit's awesome. And you can see it from a mile away like a train. Trains are reminders of how logos need to work because mm-hmm. you can see them across the field and go, oh, yeah, there's the, the Burlington Northern whatever. You know, you can see it. That is pure, functional, working graphic design. That's oh, shit so well. It said really well, functional being the word. Well, I know, but see, here's the deal. Am I an asshole for thinking people who only work in the fashion are weird? Kind of. I, I, get, I mean, the answer is they are fucking assholes. And I guess I am too. But that shit scares me because sometimes that's the only place they can go. And then when you challenge them and say, make this work for people who can't afford it, they don't know how to do that stuff. And that shit scares me. And I don't know what that even means. You know, when I work in a restaurant, I, it's not to say, wow, this is only for the working class. Let's get something real straight. Before you ask me about being blue collar, there's nothing about what I do. That's I'm, I have a tax manager. I have a money market account. I have things I don't even know what they mean. Return <laughs> on investments and all sorts of and things. And I have savings and I have you know, people tracking things and circling wagons and getting back to me and missing emails and you know all this shit to help me with what I saved because I saved all my shit. You know, and and that's not very blue collar. Blue collar is working the rest of your life on you know on shit that's small, small little things. And you know, people will say, "Well, you're a blue collar designer." It's like, "Fuck, man, no, I'm not. I, I got out of that shit. I know what it's like to to have nothing, and I worked my ass off to get away from that. This is pretty white collar now. I mean, hopefully the DNA is still there, or the or the idea is, and this is within persnickety, sweaty ass little graphic design. But if I go to a press check. I don't thumb my nose down to the people spitting out your prints. I know how to be nice. I know how to be accommodating. Mm-hmm. I've spit just enough to where someone had the audacity to think that they elevated themselves 
out of those sort of work in person sorts of jobs and they're kind of snapping their fingers at you know the people that are like pumping out the prints <laughs> that's how you fuck your print job up number one and number two that's just not how you work my dad was a, was a tool salesman mm-hmm. and my dad would go into these tool shops and he would you know make his way through the back of the shop hey he knew all these guys he'd go up to the front he would is, is, is so-and-so in? I'll be up there in a couple minutes. He'd run to the back, and he'd talk with all the guys, bullshitting, telling jokes, mm-hmm. bringing them little things. You know, hey, how's your, how's your kid doing? My dad knew all these things because he grew up with these guys. When all that 97% bullshitting was done, he'd save the final 3% to go up to the guy who ran the place, who looked like he was running the place, who wasn't funny. He looked stressed. Had some shitty mustache. Remember, this is like take your kid today, 1983. I'm 10 years old or, you know, whatever, 11 years old, 1984. Mm-hmm. The guy isn't funny and he doesn't want to hear my dad's jokes. My dad does his business and he gets the hell out of there. But my dad knew how to talk to every single guy in that place. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Be one of them. Because that, he was one of them. My dad worked in factories and shit. It's that building and fostering community, whatever your community is. Building, fostering, being a part of that. And, you know, almost use the word mentoring that community. Yeah, yeah. Perfect. I just, I just appreciate – listen, I know that what I get to do sometimes is a little persnickety, and yes, but if you come and you work with me, I will reduce it down to this thing where it's as if we were working a summer job together and we had to, we had to get each other in it mm-hmm. and get each other out of it. And that isn't something that I get to – you know, I don't know how to say it. It's like I just – the, the main battle doing any of this stuff is to be comfortable. I watch my dad make people comfortable. You know, yes. and that and that's the same thing here. And it's like, you know, when I have to deal with the client, that isn't necessarily the three percent because I've worn them down or I've allowed them to be with me. You know, I, I've allowed them to just—I don't know how to say it. Like, this is going to sound horrible, but I just did a big job for a guy, and in one of our final phone calls, and take this for what you want, he probably knows, has an idea of how I talk with my buddies. And I don't want to sound like some big, dumb, gorilla, dumbass dude, you know, saying horrible things. But he said something to me about ball sweat. (laughs) And I was like, like, first of all, now you get me going with my buddies and we get going about, you know, I'm sponsored by Gold Bond. I'm going to issue a Gold Bond alert for the better part of, you know, the greater Atlanta area, Tri-County area, because you go down there and you sweat like a science project. Okay, whatever. But the deal is, we're on the phone. I have kept an air of professionalism. I know people are going to roll their eyes when they hear that trap and you, 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 what, you gorilla. Well, hold on. He doesn't know that. And then when he said this to me, I kind of laughed at him. I said, oh, you don't want to pull that. You don't want to pull that. You don't want to pull the curtain back on that shit, man. Really? Okay. Now I know where we're at. If that's how you talk, then we're just fine. Because at that, up to that point, that was a service I would never, ever breach that sort of trust. You know, what if he was some, you know what I mean, like Bible banging Christian, whatever the hell. Oh yeah, and you come out and drop far, an f bomb or something like far that. Far from it. Oh no, he. We got past that shit pretty quick because he. <laughs> I let him do it. You see what yes. I'm saying? I let him do it. I watched my dad do the same. And, and you know, if you're around these good Christians and, and you say the word fuck and you watch them react like that well you don't need to be the person to do that you know it's mm-hmm. there's ways of you know feeling around and, and 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 you know whatever and i watched my dad do that and be accommodating and make people comfortable that is no different 
working on a big, big, big job. Or, you know, when I was working on a couple days ago where a guy is a construction guy in town who just wrote me and said, I probably can't afford you, but it, it's a long shot. I just wrote him back. I'll have it done today, man. I like your work. I love your, your, your sort of moxie for reaching out to, you know, this to me, thinking I'm some big hot shit thing because I'm not. I'm one of you. But, you know, uh, sure, there's some high profile shit that you've seen to make you say that. But now we're on the phone together. It's just me. Hi, let's do it. And then I yeah. got you know, made a couple grand. It was awesome. We're all working hard humans, right? Yeah. So I want to ask you a little bit about print design because through your Instagram, I've seen a fair amount of print in your feed, which I really dig. I'm a print guy at heart. And that's where I'm going to cut part one. Thank you so much for listening to part one of this interview with Aaron Draplin. Um, and I wanted to just say something else here. Getting to 100 episodes definitely would not be possible without you guys and gals and you very talented designers and you you listeners that have sent me emails, have left reviews on iTunes and things like that, and that my amazing guests who come onto the show willingly, a little bit nervous, the Quickie Podcast, what the hell is this guy all about? And then we have a great conversation. Thank you to all of my guests um, from episode one to episode 100, where we're at right now. Um, I really appreciate the time that you took out of your busy schedules to be a part of this. This project really just started as something that was exciting to me, something new, something different where I could connect with more designers, hear more stories, and have fun talking just sort of outside my network, you know, in my Vancouver bubble here. And it's done that and so much more. I cannot wait for the next 100. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be so great. And we've got some big plans to bring some really cool new things and some shocking and exciting things to the show. So thank you for investing your time and being a part of the Quickie Podcast as a listener, as a guest, as a fan, and emailing me. I, I love the feedback. I love the reviews. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So as I usually end most of them, guys, have a great day. I'll see you tomorrow.